conditions Not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign That's why you hear the same old things they claim Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-host with Mickey Huff. This week on the Project Censored show, we're talking reproductive justice and the recent leaked draft of the Supreme Court decision to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision being the latest in a long line of attacks on reproductive health care and the fundamental right to bodily autonomy. I share my own experiences, along with facts and some fiction about abortion, the huge disparities in terms of access, particularly among indigenous communities. I offer a comparison with my other home country and share a few resources for those looking for support. Later in the show, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice in California, Jessica Pinckney, joins the show to talk about existing barriers to health care, even in what many consider to be the most progressive state in the nation. She highlights ways in which her organization and others have been supporting reproductive justice in a myriad of ways and will continue to do so if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned. All this coming up on Project Censored. Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a bit of a... A different, a, a bit of a special show this week in that we're going to get a little personal. So strap in. <laughs> Come with me. <laughs> so basically, at this point, most of our listeners, if not all of them, are aware that earlier this month on May 2nd, a draft from Supreme Court Justice Samuel A. Alito was leaked detailing the decision to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that protects the right to abortion. So I'm going to start off this episode of the Project Censored radio show talking about some of my personal experiences, because I think this is important. I think it's important that those who feel comfortable share their stories of abortion to help remove the stigma of abortion and make it a regular conversation about general health care, because that's really what it is. So... I have a five-month-old child on purpose after careful consideration and planning with my partner. About 11 years ago, I got pregnant very not on purpose. And as soon as I found out, there was never a question in my mind whether I was going to get an abortion or not. It was always 100% yes. The whole scenario was wrong. Uh, It was the wrong time in my life. It was definitely the wrong person to get pregnant with. And to me, it was the wrong place. I got an abortion in Los Angeles, California, and it was safe. It wasn't particularly affordable, even though I had insurance, which is, you know, another conversation that we that we've recently had with Dr. Margaret Flowers about the the complete mess that is our so-called health care system. I think it's actually better to call it a sick care system. So my out-of-pocket expenses were a lot to me. They were $700, but I was able to make it work. And I have no illusions about my privilege and luck in that situation vis-a-vis geography and having the ability to get $700. Again, I would have ended that pregnancy. The only questions were whether I could do so safely and without losing my apartment. That latter question was really the biggest one because the safety aspect was, I felt, a foregone conclusion in a place like Los Angeles, California. And it was. I was able to access it safely. I had a great doctor uh, who was very caring and supportive. And 
If it weren't for that safe and accessible abortion, I would not be a parent today. I would have zero children. The abortion that I got and my recent pregnancy are part of the same issue of reproductive health care access. I had a safe pregnancy recently because I had a safe abortion then. It is really that cut and dry. And to talk about these issues as if they're disparate issues and disparate health issues is completely wrongheaded. They are all part of reproductive health care, which is part of health care, as, as, our, as our guest will also discuss later in the show. And the more that we talk about abortion like it's its own thing out in this ether of shame and stigma, the longer we will have to grapple with that shame and stigma in very real experienced ways that keep people from having bodily autonomy, which is a human right, that keep people from being able to make decisions for their lives, for their families, for their communities. I personally have not ever once regretted my decision to have an abortion, just as I today do not regret the decision to become a parent. And this is my story. There are literally as many stories as there are abortions. And in fact, you can read many of them over at shoutyourabortion.com, which is a, a great resource that also not only shares stories of abortions, but also shares resources, some of which I will share later in the show. And again, sharing these stories is so important because it normalizes the conversation about abortion. It works at chipping away that puritanical stigma around really both sex and reproductive health care, something that this country desperately needs. And for a brief comparison, I grew up partially in the United States and partially in Sweden. I'm a dual citizen, and for those wondering, yes, I totally do feel like a secret agent when I pack two passports. I can only imagine how 007 people with three passports feel. But anyway, (laughs) I spent ninth grade in Sweden, so my early teens, and uh, there was continuing sex ed that built upon information that had already been taught in previous grades. We learned how to use condoms properly, different types of birth control, and we learned that these were all available at youth healthcare clinics across the city, even in a small place like where I lived. So yes, a 14-year-old could walk into a youth healthcare center and grab a handful of condoms. And what's more, when I was in school, a friend of mine got pregnant. She went to one of these youth centers and made an appointment for an abortion. Her parents did not need to be notified. There was no need for a judicial bypass, which is a law. It's a requirement because of a law in many states that prevents teens under 18 from obtaining an abortion unless they involve a parent or go to court. So it's the judicial bypass for abortion is basically an order from a judge that allows a minor to get an abortion without the notification or consent of their parents. And of course, this can be very problematic if parents don't agree with the concept of abortion. They are horrified that their child is even sexually active and would be would be willing to force someone under 18 to have a child just because they are so gobsmacked by the concept of an abortion and that the health care that is an abortion. It could also be very problematic if the parents are abusive or if in the case of incest and the parents are actually responsible for the pregnancy. There are a myriad of reasons why a judicial bypass is really a dangerous concept for the health, not just physical, but mental and emotional health of the person involved. But 
In Sweden, there's no need for that. Just simple, straightforward healthcare. And my friend was back in school quickly after the very safe abortion. Her usual outgoing self, safe, confident, secure, and without any air of the shame or stigma that you'd find in the U.S. And this highlights another point. Her access to that reproductive health care that she needed had big emotional and mental effects. She understood that she had bodily autonomy, that she herself could walk into that space and ask for care that she needed for her body. She could decide on her own what happened to her body, to her life. Unlike, you know, what President Biden said back in the day with regards to Roe v. Wade, I don't think that a woman should be the only person to make decisions about her body. So more than can be taught in any classroom, she learned that she had power and autonomy. And at the time, I had no idea how unusual or actually nearly impossible this scenario would be in the United States, nor should it be. And, you know, I mentioned the judicial bypass, but that's just an example that affects minors, people under 18. But listeners might be aware that there is a cacophony of barriers to abortion access. So, for instance, there's uh, trap laws, which are specifically designed laws that are severe and unnecessary requirements on abortion providers and women's health centers that are meant to shut them down rather than actually make them safer. An example is building modifications that are incredibly expensive and arbitrary, like hallway width and complex HVAC systems, and even, I'm not kidding, even specs for outfitting janitor's closets, because clearly the interior design of a janitor closet is about keeping pregnant people safe. Other barriers include forced ultrasound laws, biased counseling and mandatory delays, anti-abortion violence, and so-called abortion refusal laws, which are laws that allow individuals and institutions to refuse to provide or pay for medical treatments that they find objectionable, or actually even counsel or refer patients to those kind of treatments. And again, I think it's really important to highlight that this goes beyond just physical health which is, of course, on its own very important. But just like with any other medical treatment, access to abortion allows us to feel and understand power and autonomy over ourselves and our lives. Imagine, for instance, that you needed back surgery, but it was illegal. So instead of getting the care you needed, you had to suffer in pain and try desperately to cobble together a life that could be so clearly and simply improved by existing and safe treatments. And actually, it's even more stark than that because abortion is literally one of the safest treatments a person can have. For example, in the U.S., abortion is about twice as safe as a shot of penicillin. The risk of death from abortion lies around 1 in 100,000. Penicillin is 2 in 100,000. To give you an idea of what that compares to, canoeing also has a death risk of 1 in 100,000. So yes, getting an abortion in the U.S. is about as dangerous as paddling a canoe. At the same time, abortion is 14 times safer than giving birth. According to the CDC in 2017, about 60% of people having live births will develop one or more complications of pregnancy, birth, and the postpartum interval. I'm one of that 60%. Meanwhile, maternal mortality continues to rise in the land of the free and the home of the brave. 
2020, 861 women were identified as having died of maternal causes compared to 754 in 2019. Wow. You know, I wonder why maternity wards don't have to constantly redo their janitor closets. Maybe that would help. Now, if you look up, if you Google or I'd use DuckDuckGo abortion statistics on my search engine, it is mind-boggling. And actually, these were the first results so-called pro-life pages that gave absurdly false stats and ideas about abortion, things that suggest that the cluster of cells is far more developed and has like eyes by the time it's like five weeks old, which is terrifying because that means it would have teeth by the time it's you're like 20 weeks and that's just creepy. This is like turning into some kind of like alien film. Just really incredibly false and anti-science statistics. I guess it's not surprising this comes from the same people who literally have a museum that shows a picture of a person riding a dinosaur. So it's not all that surprising, but it is horrifying to think that people maybe who are looking for an abortion are wondering what their risks are, are wondering if they should feel shame about it, are looking this up online and finding some of these same sites that have the most absurd stats and fallacies about abortion, in particular, whether it's safe or not. So, of course, if you're looking at this and you're like, hey, am I going to die if I decide to go through with this? And these sites are like, absolutely, you'll die. Also, you'll go to hell. For some people, especially the hell part, I think for everyone, it's scary to die. But for some people, this concept of going to hell because you make a decision about your health care is absolutely horrifying. It's terrifying. And this is, you just look on a search engine and this is what people have access to, which again is why it's so important to flood, not just the internet, but flood spaces, community spaces, digitally and analog, with real stories about abortion, real stats about abortion, so that we can remove the stigma, not just around abortion, but around sex and around women with power. And having the power and ability to decide for ourselves what we do with our bodies. To remove the fear and taboo around that. We have to flood these spaces with these stories and these truths. And this is something that we also talk about on this show. The need to flood these spaces with the news that you're not going to hear on corporate media and why it's so important to battle censorship, why it's so important to ensure that we share these stories that come from, you know, the front lines, whether that be the front lines of reproductive justice, the front lines of a pipeline fight, what have you. It's so important that these stories get shared and shared so that these voices and these experiences are amplified. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. So stay with us. Spontaneity has brought a third. But due to our youth and economic state, we wish to terminate. About this we don't feel great, but baby, that's how it is. But the feds have dissed me. They ignored and dismissed me. The pro-lifers harassed me outside the clinic and called me a murderer. Now that's hate. So needless to say, we're in a mental state of debate. Hey, beautiful bird, I said, digging her somber mood. The fascists are some heavy dudes. They don't really give a damn about life. They just don't want a woman to control her body or have the right to choose. But baby, that ain't nothing. They just want a male finger on the button. Because if you say war, 
They will send them to die by the score. Aborting missions should be your volition. But if Suda and Thomas have their way, you'll be standing in line unable to get welfare while they'll be out hunting and fishing. It has all part of this stigma surrounding abortion and reproductive health care is of course about making both sex and abortion seem, like I said, unusual and also unclean in a moralistic sense. I mean, good sex is also often dirty, but that's a completely different story. And the facts are clear, of course, that neither sex nor abortion are uncommon. (laughs) I mean, sex, it's laughable to think that it's uncommon, but with regards to abortion, one in four pregnant people will have an abortion by the time they're 40. One in four. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 59% of those obtaining abortions are mothers or parents. 59%. A deeper look into demographics show other stark realities of, of those most likely to seek abortions and those who are and will be most hard hit by further restrictions on this care. As of 2016, when the Guttmacher Institute released their findings, 75% of abortion patients were poor or low income. were in their 20s, 39% were white, 28% black, 25% Hispanic, 6% Asian Pacific Islander, and 3% other. And I want to touch on the other for a minute, because couched in that other, there's a whole other colonialist sham at work. Indigenous people in the United States have far less access to health care across the board. 2018 numbers show that Indigenous people in the U.S. have a life expectancy 4.4 years less than the U.S. all-races population and continue to die at higher rates than other Americans in categories of preventable illness, such as chronic liver disease and diabetes. The Indian Health Service, IHS, an agency nestled in the dungeons of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, is tasked with providing care to over 2.2 million Native Americans, but is chronically underfunded and continues to be more and more underfunded. And to say that people are falling through the cracks would be a gross understatement. It's more like people are being shoved through the gaping chasms of a system built on the genocide of indigenous peoples. So it's really kind of hard to expect that same system to provide stellar health care. And with regards specifically to reproductive health, The numbers are abominable. Right now, I'm pulling from a 2020 High Country News article on this topic by Allison Herrera. A 2002 study published by the Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center, which is a South Dakota-based nonprofit that advocates for indigenous women, found that only 25 abortions were performed in the IHS system since 1976. 25 abortions performed in the Indian Health Service system since 1976 when the Hyde Amendment was passed. And the Hyde Amendment prevents the use of federal funds to pay for abortion services with rare exceptions. And going back to the conversation about barriers, the Hyde Amendment is huge. Because if you pass Roe v. Wade, which makes abortion legal throughout the country, and then you pass an amendment that says that federal funds can't pay for that health care, riddle me this. How accessible is that care then? 
And this is very indicative of that. 25. Between 1976 and 2002, 25 abortions were performed in the IHS system. I keep saying that, but I keep saying it because I'm wondering if I'm saying it wrong. Because it's when I read that, I spit coffee all over my computer and I it's still running but you know I, I mean that that's such a it's so it's so absurd it's so abominable the same 2002 study is one of the few to track abortion statistics specifically among indigenous women high country news filed a FOIA request for more recent data but it has gone unanswered When clinics are able to provide an abortion, it comes with strict conditions. The procedure can only be performed in the case of rape or incest, or when a woman's life is in danger. Furthermore, IHS policy states that rapes must be reported within 60 days in order for women to receive abortion care. Which, folks may or may not know this, but a large percentage of rapes go unreported for a for a lot of different reasons. IHS also requires signed documentation from a law enforcement agency and a health care facility, along with a police report filed within 60 days of the incident. I mean, wow. Bureaucracy is mind-numbingly atrocious just on like an average Tuesday. Can you imagine if you've been subjected to rape and are now pregnant, and then you have, to, you have to jump through these absurd bureaucratic hoops, and chances are that you might not even get access to it anyway? I mean, what? And on top of that, the incident has to meet the definition of rape or incest as defined by law in the state or tribal jurisdiction where the incident was reported to have occurred, the policy states. I mean, what? Who gets to define rape? The Bureau of Justice Statistics, which tracks crime nationally as well as in Indian country, reported that in 2016, Alaska Native and Native American women experienced higher rates of sexual violence than their white and Latinx counterparts did. And these are just the assaults that we know about. Again, not everything was reported. And listeners may be familiar with the acronym MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, also sometimes noted as MMIR or MMIP for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives, or people, which highlights the high rates of disappearances and murders of Native people compared to those of other groups. So, taken all together, we see that Indigenous communities suffer greatly from the continued violent colonization of their lives, from the land to their bodies and the connections between And in terms of abortion access, indigenous pregnant people may seek care outside of IHS, but say you're in Oklahoma, a state that has worked very hard to make abortion impossible for all its residents. So in other words, the outlook is already bleak for indigenous folks and, as the Guttmacher Institute found, for all poor and low-income people, of which indigenous are certainly statistically overrepresented. So again, I think it's important, and our, our upcoming guest will mention this as well, I think it's important to note that, yes, overturning Roe v. Wade would be horrible. But it's not like things are great for pregnant people seeking abortions now. And 
it needs to be highlighted that something like Roe v. Wade needs to be codified into law. And I will point out the Democrats could have done so at any point since 1973 when they controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, but they chose not to because it is far more interesting. It is far more delicious to hold that over our heads every election cycle. And look for it. I mean, you know, we, we, we talk about media literacy in, in, uh, in the show as well. Just look for this, this level of baiting. You call it pink baiting, although I don't like the color pink and I'm, I'm a woman. I guess you could call it, you know, femme baiting or, or I don't know. But this is, this is something they'll bring up consistently. Oh, if the Republicans win, you won't have reproductive health. Well, I don't have that much already. And if you were so desperate to ensure my access to reproductive health care, get your act together and pass this into law. You control both houses of Congress and the White House, and you have done so several times since 1973. These excuses ring hollow. So with all that, people might be like, wow, I just need a drink. This is sounding very depressing. But I think... First of all, it's important to to talk about this, talk about the realities of abortion access, also talk about the realities of abortion, but also talk about what we have, what we do have access to. And that includes alternatives. So I mentioned earlier, Shout Your Abortion. They have a, a great list of resources, including a page that talks about abortion pills Sorry if I mispronounce this, but uh, mifepristone and misoprostol, aka abortion pills, are safe, effective, and widely available online for roughly $150. And there are places that you can get financial aid. And you can order the pills now to have on hand before you even get pregnant. And so this is something that, as Shout Your Abortion writes, quote, abortion by mail can significantly reduce the harm done by anti-choice legislation, but only if people know that this option exists. Please be aware that acquiring and using pills may carry legal risk, especially for marginalized people. That said, we reject the authority of any governing body to determine whether or not we're allowed to end our own pregnancies. And the widespread availability of abortion pills means that they'll never be able to stop us, end quote. So you can check that out. Again, shoutyourabortion.org has more information about where to get that. They also have, if you, if you go to shoutyourabortion.com and you click on resources, there's, as I mentioned, information about abortion pills, at-home abortion, Plan C. There's also links to locating clinics in your area. There's links to the National Network of Abortion Funds, which can show you where to get financial assistance and logistical support wherever you might be in the country. Emotional support as well. There's a link for transgender health, legal support, and then general resources such as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, aka RAIN. And the guest that we're going to have in a minute is going to talk more about barriers and how people are preparing for Roe v. Wade being overturned, but have already been preparing. Because again, 
barriers already exist and have existed, as I pointed out, since Roe v. Wade was passed. The Hyde Amendment was passed in 1976. The work on ensuring that bodily autonomy is not a reality for pregnant folks has been going on, well, for a long time. You know, well since before the the advent of the United States. But I think that, you know, talking about the, the realities of abortion, the realities of barriers, particularly with communities that are already experiencing the lack of access to overall health care, as I mentioned, such as indigenous communities. And of course, Latinx, Black, and people of color have, have also more barriers to accessing health care than white communities statistically. So I think that it's important to talk about these realities with regards to class and race. And I also think it's important to talk about experiences and to share our experiences for those who feel comfortable and recognize, again, that every abortion has a different story. And the more we talk about it, the more normalized it becomes and the more that we can push forward to a future where people can have access to bodily autonomy for every kind of health care, including reproductive health care. So... Thanks for hanging out with me for this little minute. And when we come back, we will be joined by Jessica Pinckney, who's the executive director of Access Reproductive Justice. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. So stay with us. Grandma Nature, Mother Moon, show me. Thank you so much for listening to Project Censored Radio. We're very excited to be joined today by Jessica Pinckney, who is the Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, a reproductive justice organization funding abortion and other reproductive health care. Access removes barriers and builds the power of Californians to achieve reproductive justice. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So first off, I'd like to highlight the tattered state of Roe v. Wade as it stands as, you know, as of today. And Jessica, you're in California and California, I mean, I lived there for 10 years and then I've spent a lot of time outside of it. And California is considered to be the most progressive of the states in the country. And yet, of course, access and the work that you all do exists in order to remove barriers to reproductive health care that obviously must exist in California. Can you talk about some of those barriers and the current state of abortion access right now in California? Absolutely. So access reproductive justice has been in existence since 1993. 
which is almost 30 years. And I think that's a really important to lift up because it indicates that there have always been barriers to accessing abortion care here in California, even though we are a reproductive freedom state and one of the more progressive states throughout the country. But for those who haven't lived in California, it's a massive state. It could take you the better part of a day to drive from, you know, the tip of Northern California to the tip of Southern California. And there are over 40% of California counties that have no abortion providers or clinics whatsoever. So even in California, where there are a multitude of providers and clinics who can support with abortion, you might have to drive three or four hours or more if you live in a rural area to access care. So that's one barrier folks face. Another is you may be having a multiple day procedure and you may be four or five hours away from home. So people need support with lodging and hotels to be able to stay overnight away from home. You know, we're lucky in California that California's Medi-Cal does cover abortion for folks, but, you know, sometimes copays and deductibles are really a barrier for people on private insurance. We are lucky to have just passed SB 245 here in California, which eliminates copays and deductibles for abortion on California's private insurance plans. And that will go into effect in 2023. But, you know, sometimes people call us and have a $2,000 deductible and it's honestly cheaper for them to have their abortion out of pocket than to pay through their insurance. So those are just a few of the issues that people have. You know, we have young folks who are on their parents' insurance plans, don't want their parents to find out they're having an abortion. We have undocumented folks who are navigating various government systems and also concerned about potentially being forced to leave the country because they're trying to have an abortion. We have folks who have unstable housing and need stable housing to be able to even have a medication abortion at home. So there are a lot of barriers, even in a progressive state like California. And so we can only imagine then what the barriers look like in the least progressive, most restrictive spots throughout the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because the next question is really about zooming out, because if, if the court sticks with this decision, then it would be basically leaving it, leaving it up to uh, states to decide. And so I'm curious how you feel like that will affect or change the work that you do. And I found you through a national, a national collective of uh, abortion funds. And so I'm curious how you think this might affect the way that reproductive health care organizations work across state lines? Will they, will that, do you think that'll happen more often? Or, or how do you see this shifting your work? So Access Reproductive Justice has always supported people coming from out of state to access care. That need has certainly grown over the last few years. And we, of course, anticipate that it will grow even more if and when the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. 
We always work with other abortion funds across the country. We are part of the National Network of Abortion Funds, which is a network of about 80 abortion funds and practical support organizations all across the country. So for example, when SB8 went into effect in Texas, we were already in conversation with the 10 abortion funds that are in Texas to make sure that we could collaborate in supporting people coming from Texas to California to access care. And that can look like the Texas Abortion Fund paying for the airfare and access reproductive justice paying towards the procedure itself. It can really look a lot of different ways. So I think, honestly, abortion funds were really built for this moment. We know how to support people in coordinating their abortion care. We know how to work with clinics, how to work with other abortion funds, how to work with abortion doulas and other support folks to make sure that people can adequately get care. But we absolutely anticipate that there will be a huge influx of people who will be coming from out of state to California. And we here in California are doing everything possible to be ready for that moment. We've been working through the future of abortion council that was put in place by the governor last fall to move 13 bills through the state legislature that would improve abortion access in California. And that covers everything from ensuring that there are legal protections in place for providers, for patients, for people who support providers and patients, to ensuring that there's increased funding to support paying for abortions themselves, as well as the practical support work that Access Reproductive Justice really focuses on. There's legislation to ensure that there can be funding for reproductive justice organizations who provide culturally sensitive and congruent education to their communities. And there's work through that legislation also to ensure that we increase the provider workforce in California. So we're very much anticipating that there will be a number of changes in the, in the dynamic, but we're doing everything possible to prepare. I'm glad that you are because uh, I grew up partially in North Carolina and I'm already hearing horror stories of, of people trying to figure out what they're going to do, abortion providers and people who work on this issue, what they're going to do if, and when that hammer does fall. And with respect to that, I think it's also important, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know if there's a correlation here, but, you know, the fact that access started in 1993, there was actually back in 1993, a bill that was put forward, the Freedom of Choice Act, that basically would have codified Roe versus Wade into law. And this highlights the issue that any time since Roe v. Wade was, was, was passed, this could have been codified into law. So I'm curious, first of all, if there's a correlation between the founding of access, but also how you feel people can push this, push this issue legislatively, knowing that, you know, it's, it's been stuck for so long and the Dems don't really seem that interested in, in pushing it forward, not on a federal level anyway. Yeah, definitely not on a federal level. No, I'm not aware of any correlation with Access's founding in 1993 and that particular piece of legislation 
It doesn't mean that there isn't a correlation. It's just not something I'm aware of kind of in our history. But, you know, I think it's, it's really unfortunate that the leaked draft or SCOTUS draft uh, really has kind of drawn people to attention, I think, in a way that the reproductive health rights and justice community have been calling for for a long time. This is not a new issue. Even in 1973, when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land, we know that a right is only a right if you can actually access it. So for many, Roe v. Wade has been non-existent for, for years, if not decades. And we know that that's the case for, for the majority of the country already. And so I think what this moment really brings up for me is, you know, this isn't a new problem and it's, it's really empowering to see people coming to the movement and trying to understand the work that is being done and trying to plug in to where and how they can help. But I think it's also really important to understand this is work that has been being done for decades that has been predominantly led by black and brown communities, by LGBTQ leaders. And it really feels like that they're particularly on the legislative end at the federal level that there has, we have been ignored and that there has been a real dismissal of conversations around abortion and abortion access because they're quote unquote controversial. But the thing about it is abortion is healthcare, plain and simple. And so the politicization of something that has no business being politicized is really frustrating, I think, now and always. But, you know, I know there are advocates and activists all across this country that have been doing the work and will continue to do the work to make sure that people can get the care they need no matter what. And I think it's just really imperative. I'm really thrilled to see here in California the way state legislators, the governor, the attorney general have stepped up in this moment. And I hope that It sets an example for federal legislators, for other state legislators to really think through how we can support work that has been being done for quite some time to make sure that we're destigmatizing abortion and making it as truly accessible as possible. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break, so stay with us. Street can grow. You don't. 
Welcome back to the program. We continue to be joined by Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, Jessica Pinckney. Something you said highlighted yet another snare in this whole scenario is, you know, at the same time as folks are pushing for reproductive health care, there's a push for universal health care, which, as you pointed out, includes reproductive health care. But, you know, hypothetically, let's say that Roe v. Wade is overturned and that states get to decide, but then there's a universal health care that passes down the road. How would that then affect people's ability to access abortion? I think it also really highlights like how important if, if we're talking about federal decision, like how important it is to have that accessible wherever you are, because of course people will also move. And so like, let's say I lived in California, then I moved to North Carolina. All of a sudden I don't have reproductive rights because I changed my geography. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really absurd. And with that, I, I kind of also wanted to ask, since you're an expert with this, you know, people who are, who are really scared looking at uh, the, the potential for the coming months, what are some options for people who might need reproductive health care and might just be having to break the law or not sure what to do in, in, the, in the case of, of needing help? I think it's really important to know as of right now, the end of May, abortion is still legal across the country. So if you have an appointment already, if you're trying to make an appointment, go forth. Of course, limitations in places like Texas, we're seeing a likelihood of a complete ban in Oklahoma. But still, call your local clinic to try and make an appointment. Call your local abortion fund if you need support accessing care. And honestly, that's the advice I'm going to have for folks if and when Roe v. Wade is overturned and half of states ban, outright ban or close to outright ban abortion. Still, call your clinics, call your local abortion funds. We will be, everyone will be doing the work to try and get people connected to the care they need. So. We already work with Texas clinics who will direct folks to California clinics when necessary. And we just anticipate that that will continue. So folks should not fear. Yes, there will likely be increased barriers to you accessing your abortion, but there are a number of states that have quickly enacted legislation and funding to make sure that we can help get people from one place to another as efficiently and as quickly as possible. So there's certainly a tough road ahead. I don't want to sugarcoat that in any way, shape or form, but 
abortion funds, clinics, providers are as prepared for this moment as we possibly can be. And I think the beautiful thing about people who work in this space is this is a very personal issue for many of us. And we will do everything in our power to make sure that people can get the support that they need, no matter what. Yeah. Thank you for for voicing that. And also, you know, as part of this segment that we're doing on Project Censored, I too am highlighting that I had an abortion in California and I'm very glad that I was able to access it. I feel very privileged. It wasn't cheap, but it was safe. And I, like so many others, would have gotten it no matter what. And so I think that that's another thing that is often highlighted, but people don't hear it enough. I think that you're never going to stop people from getting an abortion. You're only going to stop them from getting a safe one. Yes, I agree. Like you're never going to stop people from getting an abortion, but I think it's important to know things look a lot different than they did pre-1973. Folks can have safe abortions in their homes with medication abortion. We know that many Black, Brown, Indigenous communities have been self-managing their abortions for decades, if not centuries. And so I think it's also really important to reflect on where we've come as a society in terms of our technologies and our innovation, because yes, people will figure out how to have their abortion. So if that means medication abortion at home, if, if that means getting pills from other countries, like there are a lot of things that folks could potentially and will potentially do. And I, you know, I think it's really important to acknowledge that and note that the decisions that people make about their bodies and their families and their communities are their decisions to make. And I certainly hope that if Roe v. Wade is overturned as we expect it to be, while we will see a huge loss of abortion access across the country, we will also see the way things have changed in the last 60 years or, you know, 50 or 60 years that does make abortion more accessible within the confines of your home or your community as well. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting that. That's, uh, that's really important. And also of course points out that when the system blocks our ability to thrive or even survive, then Communities have and always will band together and figure out ways to keep themselves safe. And so finally, I just wanted to ask this question because I partially also grew up in Sweden where there's really zero stigma about abortions or sex or any of that. And in fact, people who are under age can get an abortion without their parents knowing about it. There's a lot of safety and support around that issue. So I'm curious, like, how do you feel as a professional? How do you feel that there are ways that communities can work to get rid of this this stigma around abortion and really just talk about it as it is like a part of healthcare? What an interesting upbringing. (laughs) I access reproductive justice is a huge proponent of folks saying the word abortion, sharing their abortion stories. And, you know, we really try to support people to do that in a way that feels meaningful for them and not exploitive in any way. 
But I think it's really important for people to have these conversations within their own families and communities. The founder of We Testify, Renee Bracey Sherman, kind of created this, this saying, everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion. And it's so true. Everybody loves somebody who's had an abortion, whether you know it or not. One in four pregnant folks will have an abortion in their lifetime. So chances are, you know, somebody. I've seen it up close and personal, like how someone sharing their story with a close family member or a friend or someone well-respected in their life can change opinions around abortion. I think for so many, it feels like it's this far off concept, particularly if you can't, or, you know, if you, if you identify as someone who can't get pregnant, this is uncommon or abnormal in some way. And it's really not. And I think the more people share their stories, share their experiences, are unafraid and unabashed in talking about abortion. That's the really important work to destigmatize it. I think it's also really important for folks who have not had an abortion to just listen and to understand that everybody's experiences are different. And just because this is a decision you would have made differently, or you don't understand how someone ended up in this situation or whatever the case may be, it's really important for us to understand that other folks, just like we do, have the ability to make determinations about themselves and their bodies and how, if, when, and how they expand their families. And so I think just the more human compassion we have for other people, whether we know them or not, and an innate trust in people to make the decisions that are best for themselves will bring us a long way in reducing abortion stigma. Great. Thank you so much. What's the best way for folks to follow your work or to support the local abortion fund that might be in their area? Yeah. So if you're in California, I strongly encourage you to go to accessrj.org. You can donate to our organization. It's a huge help in making sure that funds get into the hands of people who need transportation, lodging, childcare, or support paying for their abortion itself. You can also learn about volunteer opportunities. Many abortion funds and practical support organizations have cohorts of volunteers who drive people to appointments, house people in their homes, provide financial support. So strongly encourage you to go to Access RJ if you're in California or are interested in supporting work in California. And if you want to look up the local abortion fund in your state or community, you can go to abortionfunds.org. There's a list of all of the abortion funds that are part of the national network there. And you can learn more ways to get involved with your local abortion fund as well. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer.
Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org and see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Habitualized alibis, skies, and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide, wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured paid for by attacks upon the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens. And the times for the master thief, combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out to reach all potential. Fain at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that love, we flip the brothers in our system.